We have an anchor that keeps the soul. The anchor of the soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. We're going to be looking today at 1 Peter chapter 1 as we think about the Christian hope. The song we sang a moment ago reminded us of the hope that we have, that anchor of the soul that, as the Hebrew writer said, is both sure and steadfast. When we talk about the hope that we have, it's not some pie-in-the-sky hope, but rather the hope that we have is based upon what God has said in His Word. And those things that he has said or revealed are true. The Bible tells us that we live in hope of life eternal, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began in Titus 1, verse 2. I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and think for a minute about the hope that we have. I want to begin by talking about how as believers... We have hope. And the hope that we have as believers, of course, is based upon or rooted in the death of Jesus and the fact that He has redeemed us to God. There are two things that I want to share with you along these lines. First of all, I want you to consider with me the fact that we are the people of God. Peter here in 1 Peter chapter 1 writes to the elect, those who comprise the elect, the called of God. We've been called by the gospel and we have tasted the benefits and the blessings of the blood of Jesus. The Bible says in verse 2 that Peter was, was writing to Christians described as elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, God had planned before the world began to redeem us through Jesus. And God makes that plan abundantly known in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God was pointing to His plan of redemption. And there were many types and shadows that foretold the coming of the Messianic age. But as we think about the fact that we are the people of God, there are a couple of things that we ought to consider. First of all, that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, as I mentioned, and that blood is described by Peter as precious. Then in verse 18, Peter said that we have been redeemed not by silver and gold, Received by tradition from the vain conversation of your fathers. But he said, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. What makes our redemption so special is that it cost God his only begotten son. When God redeemed us, he did so through the precious blood of his son Jesus Christ. Now, we talk about how blood is precious. And we understand that in, in the Old Testament, the Bible talks about how the life is in the blood. 
And I think about how each and every one of us, we have blood coursing our body. I read just a few days ago about a lady that said she lost four sons in World War II. If I recall correctly, two by land and two by sea. Now, you know, we talk about the freedom that we enjoy in this country and the blessings of living in America. And sometimes we talk about the sacrifices that have been made. And there have been many sacrifices in days gone by. But you know, if I lost a child, or if I were to have lost a parent in one of the wars that has been fought in our country for the preservation of freedom, that would make the freedom that I enjoy much sweeter. Because you see, the blood that made freedom possible was precious blood. It may not be precious to other people, but it was to me. It would be to me because it was my child or my parent. The Bible says that God spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. I think about the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, when he said that it's in him, in Christ, that we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. When you talk about redemption and the fact that you have been redeemed, you need to understand it costs God the precious blood of Jesus. As Peter said, as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. You remember Jesus is identified by Paul in 1 first, in first Corinthians chapter 5 at verse 7 as the Passover lamb that was sacrificed for us. John the Baptist saw Jesus as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And so that blood is precious. But there's a second thing that Peter points out. As God's people, not only is this blood precious, but the Bible says it purifies. It has the ability to cleanse, to purify the soul. In verse 22, Peter said, Seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit under genuine love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God which lives and abides forever. When we obeyed the gospel, the Bible says our sins were washed away, that we were cleansed, the cleansing agent, the blood of Jesus. You remember John said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. To know that though my life might be marred and stained by sin, and though I might be knee deep in a life of sin, that God has the ability and the power to cleanse the human soul. You remember Saul of Tarsus. Saul had been a persecutor of the church. He had been a murderer. Ananias instructed him to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. I don't care what your sin might be. God has the ability to cleanse, to purify the soul. There's a second thing that I want you to see in our, in our study as we think about the fact that as believers we have hope. Not only are we described as the people of God, but the Bible depicts us as pilgrims of God. Now Peter writes as an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of 
the dispersion. That is, those who had been scattered abroad. And the region that he describes here would be south of the Black Sea. It would encompass what we call Asia Minor. And so Peter is writing to Christians, and they have been scattered. As a matter of fact, we think about Christians being scattered around the globe. Well, as a child of God, we're pilgrims. We are, as Peter would say, sojourners over in chapter 2 at verse 11. We're pilgrims and sojourners here upon this earth. And the idea is that this earth is not home to us. Not in the sense that this is where we're going to be forever. But rather, we're passing through life. Now, a couple of things that we ought to consider. First, our focus. As a child of God, I understand that I am a pilgrim. I'm a sojourner. I'm just here for a brief, momentary period of time. That being the case, my focus ought to be heaven. Ought to be thinking about heaven. You know, Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3, those who mind earthly things. But he said in contrast to those who mind earthly things, our citizenship is in heaven. He said, whence also we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to know that I have a citizenship in heaven. It was said of the patriarchs of days gone by that they were pilgrims, strangers, sojourners here upon this earth, according to Hebrews chapter 11. And the Bible says that they look for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I'm interested in going to heaven. And I understand that this world, this life will pass. So what I'm interested in doing is living in such a way so that one day I can go to heaven. When Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, he said, if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, set your affection on things above and not on things which are upon this earth. Sometimes we get so bogged down with the world and the things of the world, we forget about heaven. Some have become so comfortable here on planet earth, they're not interested in heaven. And yet, as a child of God, what we have to understand is that we are moving closer to that heavenly home that the Bible talks about. Now, not only are we to be focused, but the Bible talks about how we're in a fight. You see, because we're not home yet, and we're passing through this life, you have to understand, we are fighting for the preservation of our eternal soul. Peter would say in chapter 5, be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary of the devil walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In verse 9 he said, whom withstand steadfast in the faith. And the idea is, I have to be willing to put up a fight. Why is that? Because as Peter said, we are strangers and pilgrims upon this earth, and we are to abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. We are engaged in spiritual warfare. The devil never takes a holiday. He comes after us 24-7. He's always trying to bring our faith down. And so we've got to understand the fight that is before us. And as a pilgrim, we're looking toward that heavenly home. Now there's a second thing I want you to see in our study. We talk about the fact that we are believers who have hope. But there is a basis 
for our hope. In other words, when we talk about the hope that we have, to borrow the words of, to borrow the, words of the Hebrew writer, it is a hope that is sure and steadfast. It is rock solid. So what's the basis for the hope that I have? Well, in verse 3, Peter is going to direct his praise to Almighty God. Listen to him if you would. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The word blessed is used here. It's not the same word that is used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 when he talks about what we typically call those Pentecost pointers, the Beatitudes. But rather, this is a term that is used exclusively of God. And it means to praise or to speak well of another. And so what Peter is saying, praise to God. Well, why would he praise God? Two reasons. First, because of His mercy, His marvelous mercy. Listen again to what He said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy, we talk about the abundant mercy, the matchless grace of Almighty God. Do you think the Apostle Peter understood the mercy and the grace, the blessings of forgiveness? Peter said, because of His abundant mercy, He has begotten us again to a living hope. What happened to Peter? You remember Peter and the other apostles? And we know that Judas Iscariot sold Jesus out, betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. But if you go back and you look at the record, Peter, of course, acknowledged that he was willing to die if the need were to arise on behalf of Jesus. And yet Jesus said to Peter that he would deny him three times. Peter did deny him. The sheep, that is the disciples, they were scattered, weren't they? And so you go back and you read the gospel according to John. And John comes to Peter. And there is the reestablishment, if you please, of his faith. He would say to him, feed my sheep. Peter later becomes a great apostle. He becomes an evangelist. And not just an apostle and an evangelist, but also an elder in the Lord's church, according to chapter 5 in 1 Peter. But Peter understood the abundant mercy of Almighty God. And it was because of that mercy that though he had denied the Lord Jesus Christ, he was reestablished to the faith. The Bible talks about the rich mercy of Almighty God in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy... For the great love wherewith he loved us. Peter here is talking about the abundant mercy, the tender pity of Almighty God. To know that God pities, has pity on us as members of the human family, that he would be willing to be merciful to us. And so, first, Peter praises him for his mercy. And all of us that have obeyed the gospel and live in Christ, we ought to be grateful to God for what he's done for us through Christ. It might be the case that some of us have left the Lord and come back. We've been restored, like Peter. And we can thank Almighty God for His provisions, for His reestablishment, the reestablishment of fellowship with us. 
But then there's a second thing. Not only does he speak of his mercy, but of his might. What about this hope that we have? What's the basis of this hope? What's the foundation? That cardinal principle upon which all of our hope rests. Well, look again at what Peter said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When Jesus was put to death on the cross, his enemies thought they won. As a matter of fact, the disciples... They misunderstood the whole concept of the kingdom. They thought Jesus came to redeem Israel, specifically from the yoke of Rome. And so when Jesus died, their hopes and dreams and aspirations faded. But you see, Peter and the other apostles, they became an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You want to talk about a cardinal doctrine of the New Testament, a principle upon which Christianity rests. Here is really a principle upon which Christianity either stands or falls. It's all around the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then our faith is vain, our preaching is vain, and as he said, we're still in sin. We are of all men most pitiable. But Paul said Jesus was resurrected, that he was seen by eyewitnesses. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus showed himself alive by many infallible proofs, being seen by them for 40 days. People had the opportunity to see him, to touch him, to hear him. They knew about the resurrected Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about the numerous people, above 500 brethren. He names some, and then he lists a host of people. Or rather, he lists some people that saw him. And then, generically, he talks about the 500 brethren that did see him. So, the basis of our hope. Now, it's because Jesus died and rose again that we have hope. Hope that is both sure and steadfast. It is an anchor of the soul, as the writer would say in Hebrews chapter 6. So having said that, I want you to now think with me in, in the third place of the fact that we have a bountiful hope. Well, what about the bountiful hope that we have as children of God? Peter said that we as God's people, as pilgrims here upon this earth, we have an inheritance. We understand an inheritance. Some of us have received an inheritance in days gone by. A friend, a family member, a loved one has left us a portion or maybe all of their estate. What Peter's saying here is that as a child of the living God, we have an inheritance now, listen, if you would, as he describes the inheritance that is before us. He said it's incorruptible and undefiled. That reminds us of the purity of heaven. I want you to think for just a minute about the inheritance that we have. It's not, it's not subject to decay. It's not something that can be defiled or soiled, but rather it will be pure. And those who are in heaven will be God's people. Those whose lives 
those whose lives have not been tarnished by sin and unrighteousness. The Bible tells us that Jesus has gone away to prepare for us an eternal abiding place. In John 14, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. He said, If it were not so, I would have told you, but I go, but I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. In the world in which we live, things are subject to decay. They rust, they tarnish, they wear out, they grow old. Some of you have bought a new automobile over the past year. Ten years from now, if the Lord allows you to live and that car is still in your possession, it will not be a new automobile. The seats may become worn. The engine may not run as it once did. It will show signs of wear and tear the home you live in. It might be built by the finest builder. That builder might use the finest composition to build it. The bottom line is, over time, the weather, the rain, the sleet, the sun will have, an, will have its effects. That home will grow older. And it will be dated. But the home we have in heaven, not so. It will never grow old as we sing. It will never be tarnished. We'll be in a land that John describes where there's no death. He said not only is there no death there, but there's no more sickness or illness or disease or pain and suffering. Because as he said in Revelation chapter 21 verse 4, these former things are passed away. In verse 8 he talks about those who have lived Lives of willful sin. And he said they won't be there. Those who have lived in wickedness. Those who have chosen to ignore the will of God in their lives. You see, in this life, we might have people that are known thieves living in our community. We've got people that peddle dope in our community. We've got people that are child molesters in our community. We've got people that will do all kinds of heinous things in our community. But they won't be in heaven. Because in heaven, only the righteous will be there. Those, those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. Then note what Peter said. Not only do we have an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, but he said, it does not fade away. That has to do with the permanence of heaven. Never ending. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25 in Discussing that great and final day when the righteous and unrighteous will stand before him. Of the righteous, he said, these will go away into everlasting life. Paul said we live in hope of life eternal, never ending. We bid goodbye to people here upon this earth. It's a common thing. People come and they go. Sometimes, sometimes we have to we have to come to the conclusion that even the best of things will come to an end, but not in heaven. We sing a song, Amazing Grace. And one of the stanzas in that song says, When we've been there 10,000 years, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. A thousand million years from now, heaven 
will be the same. It'll never change. I want to be in heaven. I would hope you do. And then listen to what he says. We have an inheritance. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It doesn't fade away. And he said, it's reserved in heaven for you. That has to do with preparing for heaven. Who's going to heaven? Only those who've made reservations. There are some hotels that if you want to get a room, you better make a reservation. Now you can show up and you can walk in, you can have a pocket full of money. But just because you have a pocket full of money and you're standing at the counter saying, I want a room, doesn't mean you're going to get a room. Why? Because you have to have a reservation. There's some golf courses. If you want to play golf, you better make a tee time. No reservation, no tee time, no golf. You want to go to heaven, no reservation, no heaven. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer there talks about the general assembly and church of the firstborn whose names are registered in heaven. If you make reservations and you go to the hotel that you've made reservations at, you will register once you get there. You'll sign in. You'll put your name there. By the same token, as a child of God, when we obey the gospel, the Bible says that our names are registered in heaven. We're a part of the Lamb's book of life. Jesus said on one occasion, rejoice. Why? Because your names are written in heaven. Let me ask you this question. Have you made reservations in heaven? Is your name on that divine registry? If it's not, you need to obey the gospel. You see, only those who have obeyed the gospel of Christ have the assurance of salvation. Jesus said, He that believeth, number one, and is baptized, number two, shall be saved. When we're baptized into Christ, we contact the blood of Christ that we've been talking about this morning. It is the precious blood of Christ that remits or forgives sin, Acts 2.38. When we obey the gospel and are baptized into Christ, the Bible says God adds us to the church, that is, to the ecclesia, the body. Well, why do we need to be a member of the church? I mean, can't I just have a relationship with Jesus? I mean, do I have to really have some kind of formal relationship with the church? Well, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, By one spirit were you all baptized into one body. Why do you need to be a member of the body? Because Jesus is the Savior of the body, Ephesians 5, 23. So when you obey the gospel, you enjoy the forgiveness of sins. Your name is registered in heaven. To borrow the words of the apostle Peter, you have a reservation. And if you'll be faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those that love Him. It might be that you're here and you're not faithful. You know, the Bible talks about in Revelation chapter 3 when the Lord surveyed one of the congregations of Asia Minor. He said they had a name that they were alive, but He said, you're dead. He encouraged them to be faithful to Him. He talked about those that were faithful. And the idea was that those who are faithful will not have their names blotted out of the book of life. You see, if you've gone back into the world, that name that was once recorded, registered on God's heavenly register, 
It's been removed. But it can be re-recorded. God will put your name back in the book of life. So what do you need to do? Well, the Bible says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to close by asking you to think about this. If you're a Christian and you have turned your back on your inheritance, you remember in Numbers chapter 14, verse 12, God there talking about the children of Israel. He had led them out of Egyptian bondage. And God had sent spies out to survey the land. Ten came back with an unfavorable report to Joshua and Caleb had a favorable report. The people believed the ten spies. And God was angry with them. And God said in verse 12, I will disinherit them. Look, if you're not faithful, God has disinherited you. You don't have an inheritance in heaven. But here's what I want you to see. God will take you back. Not only will He take you back, He wants you back. God hasn't moved. He's never moved. If anybody moved, it was us. So, Here's what Peter said, God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love